You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for all your people gathered here uh, this morning throughout our various services today and uh, the classes, uh, we give you thanks um, for our ability to gather. And uh, would you prepare all our hearts for the um, services and classes that we're a part of that you might speak to us and help us to um, know you more dearly and and love you more dearly and that love might overflow into our lives uh, and work with other people. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. The last couple of times I've been passing out a a clipboard. I'm going to keep passing this around. Uh, If you haven't been coming, uh, you can um, put your name and email address if you're interested in... Only if you're interested, okay? You pass it on if you're not interested. If, If you're interested in... Potential future opportunities for training specifically in evangelism. Um, uh, please uh, put down your name and email address, and I'll be in touch with you in the future if we if we have any similar offerings, especially uh, if it might be outside of Sunday. Although I might use that list um, to advertise uh, future kind of courses like this that I do personally. Um, and if you signed it before, it's the same sheet, so no no need to put your name down again. The handouts. The main handout for today is over there, or should be if we haven't run out, is the one that's about the historical evidence of the resurrection. Um, The the handout that I gave last time on the sort of like basic stuff that I I keep repeating, I edited it because there were a couple typos in there and um, uh, some mistakes. So uh, the the most recent version's over there if, if you like that. Um, with that in mind, um, let me just repeat again. That's the um, that's the handout that says apologetics as evangelism, some basic rules of engagement. Um, I'm, I'm going to say the same things over and over again because I think they're really important. Um, the main thing that I keep repeating, and we'll get at this today, is that um, the um, the center of uh, of apologetics that I think we ought to focus on is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so last time and today are kind of one lesson combined. And so this is the heart of the matter, last time and this time, of what I really want to get across. Our first lesson was about the kind of demographic shifts in our country and Western culture in general and why apologetics is a topic that I think we ought to pay uh, more attention to as uh, Christians in the Western world in the United States and increasingly in the South are going to have to have a sort of missionary mindset. Uh, and when doing evangelism in a, in a missionary context, um, you have to couple that with apologetic material. In the past, people were culturally Christian, so they had a lot of the categories that we take for granted in their bloodstream. That's still true here in Birmingham for a lot of people, though not everyone. Um, it, it, it might not be true in as little as 10 to 20 years. Um, that wasn't true for, uh, for me growing up in California. It wasn't uh, true for my friends here uh, today from Europe, uh, where they grew up. Right, Julie? <laughs> that you, you just, you, you don't have, you're not Christianized. Even in Europe, you know, where we think uh, 
where people were largely Roman Catholic for the longest time or in places like Germany uh, where you know the Reformation it was a hotbed of the Reformation I mean I was just in um, in, in France and it's just it, 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 it is us uh, what we will be like in 20 to 30 years if things keep going the way uh, they are now that that's the way things are trending and so that's why apologetics are important you can't just say you, you can. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know some people who have been converted through walk-up evangelism. I actually know a few people. It doesn't work uh, most of the time. But some people I do know, someone came up to them and said, what do you think about Jesus? Had a conversation, and it worked. Uh, the Holy Spirit can work through that. Increasingly, that's less so the case. Usually people um, have questions that we need to respond to. And we can get really distracted by a lot of that stuff. And so that's why... Um, I say that we need to always be coming back to the resurrection. Give a response to their concerns, but don't get lost in the weeds if it doesn't have to do with the things that are related to the gospel. Respond, go back to the gospel. Respond, go back to the gospel, basically is what I'm saying. And to do it constantly with gentleness and respect, as uh, Peter says in 1 Peter uh, 3.15. We're not in this to win arguments. I'm interested in losing arguments for Jesus if uh, it means me being gentle and respectful and talking about the gospel. And I might find out that in five years that somebody said, man, that thing you said to me five years ago, even though uh, I was behaving like a jerk to you, it changed my life, right? Uh, We just don't know how the Holy Spirit's at work in people's lives, and we might be uh, shocked, but if we're... um, if we're not diplomatic about it, uh, that's that's actually been a big problem. Uh, a lot of people reject uh, Jesus, but what they're actually rejecting is the church um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and they need to realize that might be true, everything you're saying about Christians, but I really want to talk to you about Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead. That's the more important thing. I mean, all Christians might be um, hypocrites, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do. Um, so that's kind of all the, the, the stuff in here. There's an explanation. And I'm giving you these uh, handouts, um, sort of unusual for these kinds of classes. I, I, I realize that, but, but they're a reference because I think a lot of the, the stuff that we're potentially talking about here might be, a, it's sort of like drinking from a fire hose. And so uh, this is for you to, this class is sort of to begin to think about it. And then when you go back home to read that and especially look at the, um, the resources that I recommend, which is the other thing. One of the, um, one of the best things you can do uh, for being an apologist uh, is to have access to, re- to, to sort of be familiar with resources. Um, that can be books. Books are great uh, to be familiar with uh, at least a handful of books, but also it could be websites, uh, certain links, videos online, um, increasingly you know online material. There's a lot of bad stuff out there, but there's some good stuff, and uh, in the uh, there are some diamonds in the rough. And hopefully, uh, the, some of the resources that I point you toward might help you find uh, some good stuff that you can. Send people's way because we should beware of speaking beyond our knowledge or at the edge of our knowledge when it comes to this type of stuff. Um, you know, it can be uh, tempting to to feel that we need to have an answer 
specifically to the question the person's raising, I think it's actually better and more honest and effective to say that's a very good question. I've thought of that myself, maybe, and I don't think I have a very good answer, but I think I can find you a good answer pretty quickly uh, by talking to some people I know or, or looking at the books in my library. Would you be interested in looking at uh, this video that I found that answers that together? You see what I'm saying? So let the expert speak to the question uh, that you're pointing them to rather than giving a, a, a wrong or bad answer uh, to the question that, that might not necessarily be true. That's an okay thing to do. It's the better thing to do than to make something up. Uh, because we're trying to defend truth, not lies. <laughs> we're trying to pretend truth and not uh, make believe. So let's talk about the resurrection. This is really probably the most drinking from the fire hose lesson of the four this month that uh, I'm giving. Uh, and by the way, next week I'll talk about the, the question of what people call the problem of evil. Because here's what I'm trying to do, okay? The first lesson was about all the demographic stuff and why I think this is important. The cl class today and, and last time were about the resurrection, which is the heart of the matter. But one of the things I've said is that even though that's the central topic that we need to emphasize and always come back to, people are going to raise questions about a variety of problems. I mean, there are about a dozen that are typical, but sometimes I'm surprised by the things that people ask me. They don't always fit in the sort of common dozen questions. I had a conversation last week. Two of the common questions that came up were the authority of Scripture, which I talked to you about last week. So you know, I was able to apply what I was teaching last week. And um, um, ha, ha, this is a common one. What about the person in, like, say, tribal Africa who's never heard of Jesus? Is God going to send them to hell? Right? These are common questions that people raise. One of the most common, statistically, actually, Barna Group, together with Lee Strobel, who's an apologist, um, asked people, if you could ask God any one question, what would you ask him? And 17%, it was the most common question was, why does evil and suffer, pain and suffering happen in the world? And so that's why next week we'll talk about the problem of evil because it's the most common sort of a concern that people will raise. You say you're having a conversation about the resurrection, all going really well. You lay out the case like I am here. They might say, well, I just can't believe in a God. Even though they have really good evidence for the resurrection, I just can't believe in a God who would allow pain and suffering to happen in the world. So that's why we'll talk about that next week. But <clears throat> this time, the resurrection, uh, and there's tons of info here and on the handout that I've given you, um, you do not need to commit all this to memory. And actually, this isn't everything. We could say so much more. I've given you sort of some highlights that I'm most acquainted with. There are some others. I thought five pages was too much already. There are some resources there that you can look up. I mean, N.T. Wright, if you know who he is, he's actually terrible on the topic of justification. But he wrote a book on the resurrection that's like 900 pages on the resurrection. So, I mean, there's so much more we could say, right? Um, but here, in, and here's the thing, you, you're, when you're having a conversation with someone, you're not going to give them all 900 pages of N.T. Wright's book. You know, you give them some highlights that especially you think might speak to them given, based on your conversation. And here are some things. Uh, looking at the handout, why is this important? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, if the, the tomb wasn't empty, 
there's no point in you being a Christian. If somebody were to, through some excavation, archaeologically, find the bones of Jesus, then we shouldn't be Christians. Uh, We shouldn't be Christians because everything that the New Testament says to us is based on a a lie. That's what Paul's saying right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you see that? That's, it, it, it confirms everything he said about himself as God and what he would do uh, as a, a atoning sacrifice for us for the forgiveness of sins. and also confirms what he said he will do when he comes back again. Okay, um, So that's why uh, it, it's important and there's evidence for it that can be convincing that this is the, um, the re- religion that we should be following and that he is actually the God. Here's a basic method. Um, for uh, what we might do. And the first three points are the most important related to the resurrection. The fourth is a sort of a bonus implication that I'm throwing out there because uh, it, it answers the question of the, um, the uh, reliability of Scripture. So here, here are the, the three things to consider. We've already last time established that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just looking at them as historical documents, not as inspired scripture, if we just acknowledge the fact that they, like other documents, exist in antiquity uh, as historical resources, um, the case is tremendous that they are actually the most reliable document in the classical Western world um, in terms of the time span between the events and uh, when it was written and the earliest manuscripts that we have available compared to other things from that era that we take for granted and don't question in the same way that people do scripture. So we've, we've already established that last time. If you didn't, weren't here, you can listen to the recording. Um, <clears throat> so we know that, if we know that, and that's not enough probably to make someone a Christian, but it, it sort of, it sure... Um, it, it sure makes the case that these are some th- documents that we might pay attention to, especially for the life of Jesus Christ. They're the best resource for the life of Jesus Christ, better than any um, resources outside of the Bible and the other documents in the New Testament. So we have that in mind. Let's think about this. In those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus Christ claims to be God. Now, other people will say that he doesn't. I'm going to give you two pages of verses that basically uh, show you that he did. He never said the phrase, I am God. Like if you do a, 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 like a search in an electronic Bible, you will not find that because he just didn't speak that way and we shouldn't expect him to speak that way. The second thing is that his resurrection it, it, before it happens is predicted and then uh, the events surrounding his resurrection, his death and resurrection are described in great detail. They're not a footnote. They are the central event of these Gospels. They're the climax uh, and described in greater detail than most of the other content. When you consider that this stuff happened over the course of three or four days, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John devote a lot of time on the events of those few days compared to the three years of his ministry uh, and his uh, whole life. And the third thing is that if this is true, that his rising from the dead serves as confirmation that he is in fact God, that he is who he said he was. Uh, And then the implication is that if he's God, if Jesus Christ is God, then everything he said must be true. Now you can take issue with these points, but that's the, that's the method that I think sounds reasonable that, that 
that, that I'm following here. Let's take a look at it. So Jesus claims to be God. As I said, some people assert that he never did. Even um, some Christians uh, uh, who uh, don't have a sort of orthodox understanding of the Bible, um, and especially some skeptics. And typically when people say that, they actually are kind of not very well acquainted uh, with the um, with the Gospels. They're parroting what they've heard other people say. That's true with a lot of these kinds of objections. You know, the person I was talking to earlier this week who said the thing about the, you know, the the, the, the people in tribal Papua New Guinea, you know, who've never heard of Jesus. I mean, other people say this, and so they hear it, and then they parrot it back, but they haven't actually thought it through. That is true with this claim that when people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God in, in the Gospels. Um, well, he, he did, if, you're, uh, if you understand the Old Testament and you're, uh, if you're paying attention to what he's actually saying. Let's consider John's Gospel. John's Gospel is probably the most helpful source in this respect compared to the others, but the other three are helpful too. The reason John's Gospel is important, uh, first of all, John himself, uh, we're interested most of all what Jesus said about himself, but it's in the context of what John said. Uh, John begins that, uh, that, uh, uh, the uh, gospel with the famous prologue that you know from uh, Christmas about how Jesus is the word of God. And that was a Greek concept. Uh, the Greek word is the, the logos, which is a sort of, um, it means word, but it's more all-encompassing philosophically than that. For the Greeks, that was the... Um, ultimate reality of understanding all meaning and teaching and philosophy uh, and so John is saying that Jesus is that word that existed before creation and, and spoke creation into existence and then in John's gospel Jesus confirms this first of all through his I am statements if you flip to page uh, two um, and I am would have for the Jewish folks been a uh, a, a, a clearly what he would have been saying is a, making a reference to Yahweh, which you know from Exodus at the burning bush where God introduces himself as I am, uh, which uh, they translate into Yahweh. And uh, so he says most poignantly in John's gospel when uh, talking to some Jewish folks about Abraham, you know, the father of Judaism, uh, he, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I'm greater than him. You know, before, before Abraham even existed, before even creation existed, as John says in the prologue, I am. Uh, and they would have, they would have uh, anybody who knew what was going on would have known what he was saying. And he, and he says very similar statements throughout John's gospel, making I am statements about I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. The other important thing in John's gospel is that Jesus says repeatedly some sort of statements that basically say, if you want to know God, if you want to know the Father, look at me. Um, for example, he says, I and the Father are one. And whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And I've given you several different verses that are that are similar where Jesus speaks that way in John's gospel. Is he saying, I am God, hashtag I'm God, 
No, he's saying something actually for the Jewish mind even more powerful than that. Um, anybody can say, you know, I am God, but he's, he's using the language of the, the, their scriptures. They would know uh, to, to, to get this across and also equating himself with uh, God the Father as being sent by the Father from heaven. What about Matthew's gospel? Well, uh, in this gospel, the, uh, one of the things that's unique about it is that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God. Uh, that's the nuance that Matthew chooses. Basically, what he says is uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning his presence uh, is equated with the kingdom. Uh, because Jesus is there, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, he's basically saying, I'm the king of heaven. <laughs> uh, and where I am, the kingdom is. Uh, and he just happens at that time to be walking around earth as a guy in the flesh. And so his kingdom is there. Uh, and he reinforces this in the Sermon on the Mount and, and the parables in Matthew, which are often about the kingdom of heaven uh, and some of his other teachings. Also related to this, you might think of the Great Commission where Jesus, uh, when he's sending at the very end of Matthew, sending his uh, disciples out as apostles to, uh, to share this message with the whole world. What does he say? He says, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know what's a clearer statement to say, I am sovereign. <laughs> I'm the king of the universe. I'm God, basically, is what he's saying. And then to reinforce that, he says, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and we've already established throughout Matthew's gospel that uh, he is the Son. Um, he's saying, baptize them in, in my name, uh, <clears throat> in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then uh, also this sort of helps sort of corroborate that in Matthew's gospel along with what uh, Jesus himself says. Matthew is keen in the very beginning to make this clear um, that he is the Christ uh, in the genealogy and the nativity stories. Even goes so far to say that he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is driving the point home too that uh, Jesus is God. And then finally, looking at Mark, um, uh, whereas uh, Matthew, we see that uh, nuance of the emphasis on the kingdom of heaven. And Mark, at the very beginning, in the first verse, what Mark says is that this is the gospel of uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark emphasizes that point that uh, Jesus is the uh, Son of God. <clears throat> which is uh, confirmed throughout with God the Father announcing it at the baptism. Even unclean spirits, uh, demons, recognize him for who he is, which is an important point to think about, that just because someone has the intellectual knowledge about Jesus doesn't necessarily make them a Christian. The devil and the demons know who Jesus is uh, and rebel against him. And the, Jesus, and the demons in Mark's gospel before other people recognize who Jesus is uh, as uh, the son of God. And then this is finally confirmed by the centurion at the, um, at the crucifixion who recognizes Jesus as son of God. Most powerfully, Jesus himself confirms this in Mark chapter 2 uh, with the healing of the paralytic. Do you remember that story? where the paralytic's sins are forgiven 
and um, some people uh, um, question this. And so Jesus says, what is easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to the paralytic man, get up and, and walk? Which, by the way, is the easier thing to say? <laughs> the easier thing to say is actually your sins are forgiven because it's invisible. But so what he was saying is, I am God, when he says your sins are forgiven, because Jews, as I referenced Psalm 51, understood that uh, only God can sin, forgive sins. Even the person who ultimately has been sinned against can't forgive in the Jewish mind the way that God can. And Jesus talking about this man's sin in a way that he's his maker. Um, and so to prove the point, the harder, th- the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven, but it's the more difficult thing to do. The, the, e- the harder thing to say, but the easier thing for God to do is to get up and walk. And so he, he only heals this man as a demonstration of who he is, um, which is another point. So that's all the Gospels and their unique characteristics. But here are some other things. Oh, I forgot about Luke. Luke, you see this more powerfully with the road to Emmaus. Luke 24 where he talks about scripture with the two disciples on the road as if they're written about him, okay? Uh, And then in all four Gospels, I'll just go to the miracle one first because I was just talking about that with the healing. The miracles in the Gospels are are not, um, they're they're penultimate. They're not the ultimate thing. Uh, They're signs. John says this most clearly to to demonstrate who he is. They're, They're a pointer. Uh, to the fact that um, it, that um, what he's saying and teaching ha- is coming from one with authority, okay? Um, and not always. Sometimes he's doing it purely out of compassion. But often he's using his power to heal and perform these miracles as a pointer, as John explains, as signs. Um, some other things across all the Gospels is a reference to himself as son of man, which is a direct reference to Daniel over the apocalyptic passages there, saying that he is the son of man that Daniel talked about who will uh, come to judge uh, the earth. And then uh, his trial and execution. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus executed, (coughs) excuse me, from a legal point of view, from the Jewish point of view? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Because he was saying he was God. You see what I'm saying? Because he was talking about himself as the son of God. That's why they killed him. Some people who have a sort of non-orthodox understanding of the Bible might even call themselves Christian say, well, Jesus died as a sort of unfortunate accident of the fact that he was a countercultural teacher and uh, it now serves as a sort of model for us. Nonsense. Don't say that. If you ever hear someone say that, call that out. No, like, and this is clear in Matthew's gospel. They actually say that he said he was the son of God. Uh, we don't hear Matthew say, uh, Jesus saying that in Matthew, but it's, um, it's reported that he said it in, in the trial. Okay, and that, so that's why he was killed. And then finally, this adds to it is the disciples, especially Peter and Thomas, say, uh, my, you know, my Lord and my God and recognize him as the, the Messiah. So that's the, oh, that's a lot to get through, sorry. But th- those documents that we called reliable, in them a, a major emphasis is that Jesus understands himself to be God, the God that the, the Jews understood as Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, come in uh, human flesh, 
In addition to that, in these Gospels, before he dies, before he's brought to trial, and before he rises, Jesus talks multiple times about his death and resurrection, that it's going to happen. Um, and, and so and here's a bunch of verses where he foretells, uh, you can look them up in, in all the Gospels, um, uh, his death and resurrection. And this is so important to him that even when Peter says this can't be, Jesus, uh, he calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. <coughs> it's so important to him that he says that what Peter's doing is uh, diabolical. Um, and then, uh, as I said, the, the cross and resurrection are described in uh, great, great detail as the uh, central event of these uh, documents, uh, the climactic event. Uh, Mark is interesting on this point because Mark, if you've read Mark, it's a great book to read with people who don't know scripture because it's so fast paced, you know, it's like an action movie. Um, I mean, if you just consider the temptation in the wilderness, two, one and a half verses, basically, of his time in the wilderness with Satan. I mean, he goes through these things like this. Throughout. It's really a fast clip. And then you get to the passion narrative. I think it's chapter 14 and 15. Boom, it's telescopes. All of a sudden, he's drawn everything out. To, what, what's going on here? I mean, this is like, the you know, everything else was the montage. And now, you know, slow down. Let's pay attention uh, to what's going on here. So this is uh, important, um, not a, a, a mere accident. On top of all this, here are some things to consider, some resources. If you came to a class that I taught several months ago um, on the resurrection, the, the important thing to, to think about is that you need to have a, a, a dead Jesus to have a risen Jesus. And so some people will deny that he ever died on the cross. There are a lot of hypotheses about this. There's one that's really spread by Islam in particular because it's in the Quran, actually. Uh, that, do you know that Jesus is in the Quran and they talk about this, that he uh, was taken off the cross and didn't actually die on the cross? And there are secular versions of this too. Well, there's a great article that came out in the journal for the American Medical Association uh, that describes uh, basically in academic form what you will see if you watch something like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. It's very difficult to stomach both of those things. But the, the article, if you have the stomach to read it, it, it clearly explains that through the description that we get in the Gospels, Jesus would have died on the cross and probably more quickly than most crucifixion victims because his, uh, tor his torture before the cross was extreme, more so than most crucifixion victims. Because they wanted them to be on the cross for a long time and really suffer there. But he was punished at an extreme level before even getting to the cross. And so that's what this article explains, that based on these descriptions, he, he surely would have died on the cross. <clears throat> and some people even say, um, well, what about the tomb? Uh, maybe he wasn't buried. Actually, a lot of uh, crucifixion uh, victims were left in trash heaps to be devoured by dogs. Um, which is a good argument, actually, historically. But archaeologically, back in the 60s, through some construction workers in Jerusalem, they uncovered a tomb where a man who was buried, his bones, clearly he was a victim of crucifixion. He had spikes through his wrists and his feet. So we have precedent that some people uh, were, who were crucified were buried and not just left on trash heaps. 
Another one to think about is the fact that um, the women were the first people who were at the empty tomb, and this would have been vastly countercultural at the time. Women were not uh, allowed to be uh, uh, witnesses at a, a legal trial because their word was not trustworthy. And the fact that the gospel writers include that material means that it must have been true. They're trying to accurately record history because uh, most of their readers would have scoffed at this concept, but they were trying to be uh, true to the facts. And so included this detail about the women <clears throat> first finding the empty tomb. Some other points to consider about uh, his resurrection <clears throat> is that the some of his uh, his well his disciples who all desert him except for John um, after encountering the resurrected Jesus against every their best uh, intuition go on to lead a movement where all they do is talk about the resurrection and end up dying for it the same guys like Peter you know who denied Jesus three times ends up several weeks later. Uh, <laughs> you know, preaching a sermon where three people, three thousand people convert and are baptized, <clears throat> and then finally James, uh, Thomas, and Saul, who becomes Paul, are three other more powerful ones to really emphasize that uh, James, his brother, uh, was a Christ denier throughout the Gospels, and then must have uh, converted through his resurrection encounter with Jesus, and ends up becoming. Uh, you know, the Bishop of Jerusalem uh, and uh, writes one of the books of the New Testament. And uh, Thomas, similarly, we have the story of doubting Thomas who must see the evidence and then is converted. And then Paul, even greater skeptic, was persecuting the church, converted, leads the movement, and is killed. Why would any of these people do this? It was not to their benefit. They all end up suffering for it, some of whom were even skeptics. That's a lot of data. There's more, but I don't know about you. When I, you know, there's enough for me to stack it up and to say, well, then Jesus must have been God. The, there's a plausible, rational thing based on the reliability of the scriptures. All the things that I just told you about Jesus in those uh, gospels claiming to be God, um, the emphasis on the resurrection, and all these uh, circumstantial details about his disciples and the women things that we've found uh, <clears throat> in recent archaeology and scientific research, um, a logical conclusion would be to say that Jesus is God. If he's God, uh, it follows that what he says is true about himself and what he's done for us, for you. And also, the next point that I want to make is this is a, a just a bonus if, if Jesus is God, then it confirms the reliability of all scripture. How so? Well, consider this. He never spoke about Hebrew scripture disparagingly. He refers to it all the time. It's so ingrained in his vocabulary, almost as if he were the author of it. And uh, <clears throat> he says, it is written to the devil at his temptation now, the devil of all people, as I said, had an intellectual understanding that far surpasses your understanding of the Bible and probably all people who have ever lived. So of all people, he could have said, well, well, come now, devil. We, you know, we know the real story. Let's you and I um, 
you know, get real here. No, they both talk about Scripture as if it were real. Jesus Christ himself emphasizing it and saying it is written against the things that Satan is using to twist his own words. And then, as I mentioned last time, this is the thing that, I, you know, is uh, uh, I find interesting and almost hilarious. He alludes to Adam and Eve as if they were real people. He talks about Noah and Jonah as if they were real historical people and equates them to himself when talking about his death and resurrection and his second coming. Uh, not as allegorical, metaphorical figures, but as if they were real people. Uh, and um, so he chooses three uh, places of scripture that were probably even hard to swallow for people back then. Uh, and especially us, <clears throat> but he doesn't say, you know, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, as uh, <laughs> as the flood came, you know, my second coming is going to, you know, be as dramatic. No, he talks about it as the real deal. And what about the New Testament? Jesus in John's Gospel promises disciples was called total recall through the power of the Holy Spirit. They will remember everything that uh, he taught them so that they would teach it and ultimately write the Gospels and the, the letters of the New Testament. Uh, and then most of the New Testament is written by those disciples or people who are acquainted directly with them. And then finally, Paul receives Peter and James's blessing at the Jerusalem Council in Acts, uh, which Paul refers to in Galatians, not to mention that Jesus, as described in Acts, has a direct encounter with Jesus Christ, uh, the resurrected Jesus. Um, so, there we go. Got five, seven minutes, technically. I don't have to go to the 11 o'clock if anyone wants to stick around and keep talking. But let's just throw that out there. Tim, you anything to say? Good morning, Reverend. Yeah. When I uh, have gone through uh, a series of doubts and, and uh, uh, as to whether or not Jesus' divinity, right. the, uh, the authority of the Holy Scripture... Uh, one thing that kind of sealed it for me over the past decade or so, if I ever really started to question it, uh, came in reference to the resurrection uh -huh. and the Shroud of Turin. Okay. When I discovered that uh, <clears throat> the Shroud was found and scientists or archaeologists uh, discovered the uh, superimposed uh, image on it, they have it on display somewhere like the Vatican or something right. like that. It's a tribute <clears throat> this stain or this superimposed image to something that was otherworldly light. Yeah. Like something not of this world powerful would have had to have done this for it to stay there. I just thought I would throw that out. out yeah. And ask, is that the shroud that they refer to as not a shroud of evidence? Kind of cliche. Right. And it is, shroud of evidence, uh, yeah. The shroud of Turin that powerful. Piece I, you of know, I, I myself would not use it. Um, if someone were to to bring it up, I might have a conversation about it. But um, I think the things that we're talking about here are um, more reliable primary sources. Um, and uh, to to go here, the heart of the matter. If there's any place to really kind of commit. Uh, a real solid understanding to in terms of apologetics is the stuff that I'm talking about today and maybe last time uh, to kind of have that at your um, in your memory bank um, and not the 
other uh, topics that might come up because they tend to be less uh, persuasive and are usually, as I talked about last time, secondary or tertiary pieces of evidence. Um, the, the primary evidence are the Gospels and to, to really stick with that and, and the resurrection. Now that isn't to say that uh, if someone brings the Shroud of Turin, I wouldn't have a conversation about it, but I myself wouldn't. I mean, there's a lot of um, controversy and debate over that sure. too, sort of um, charged environment, you know. We'll but yeah, yeah. But I'm glad it uh, was helpful to you. Um, oh, yeah. Um, any other thoughts about any of this stuff? Yeah. Um, Taylor. The last section, um, everything that you know, Jesus said must be true. I mean, we should be pretty hard blind about that. I mean, it seems like that maybe, you know, in the context of post-structuralism where yeah. nothing is true or God is yeah, absolutely. And pregnant, I mean, maybe this is the only thing that's true. Right. It's God's work. I mean, scientists are going, we might not even really have gravity. You know, they, they have faith in their math. Right. It's, it's, yeah, there's the, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of truth pointed to in science, but there's still things that scientists debate about. Absolutely. Right. But I mean, maybe this is the only <clears> thing <throat> in the world that's true. Well, it can't be. It's, it's non-negotiable. Sure. It's non-negotiable. Yeah. It can't change with culture. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the only thing, but it's certainly the the main thing that I want to emphasize. Um, I think it's true that I'm here and you are too. Some people might debate that, <laughs> but when I hit my head, I feel it. You know what I mean? By the way, your flies down. What do you want to do? It's an acknowledgement of truth that you're worried that your fly might actually be down. So that that that's the best test. If anybody ever tells you, I don't know if uh, if we really exist, say you know what your fly's down. They'll look down because they re- believe in objective reality. Does <laughs> he say that? Uh, okay, I've heard other people say that, but. But um, uh, uh, we're talking about this. Actually, we need to emphasize it for all the reasons you just said, and it's countercultural to do so in a society that doesn't believe in truth. Um, <clears throat> uh, and churches that are um, sort of buying into this sort of, uh, um, there is no kind of, you know, all, all paths lead to the same God sort of stuff. Those, those churches actually, who are often doing it for the sake of sort of reaching culture, are actually the ones who are shrinking. For some reason, people are attracted to truth. Maybe in a society where uh, people aren't emphasizing truth, it's, uh, <clears throat> it seems more livable to finally hear when you finally hear the truth, uh, to 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 want to to keep hearing it and to remain in that community. So absolutely, even though it's counter and it is countercultural to say something like everything Jesus said must be true. Well, he himself says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." Um, but uh, there's no, as I said, there's no point in being a Christian if you don't believe that. I, I think you might as well be sleeping in right now and making your way over to brunch. There's no point in being here uh, if, if, if you don't uh, find that to be words of comfort. Any one last thought maybe before we, yeah? Just, just a question, <coughs> where, where he uh, alludes to Adam and Eve and Noah and Jonah, where, where is that? Yeah, I don't have the the verses at the top of my mind. Yeah, well, with Adam and Eve, he doesn't use their names, but he refers to Genesis one and two in terms of marriage and uh, divorce. 
and there are clear references to Genesis 1 and 2. They don't call into question what was written there and uh, speaks of man and woman, which clearly in Genesis chapter 2 was about Adam and Eve. So that's why I say he alludes to Adam and Eve. With Noah, he equates his second coming with the flood that it will come in the same way that uh, nobody expected it, um, uh, in the same way that the flood was unexpected, except for to Noah and his family. Uh, with Jonah, he speaks of uh, his uh, death and resurrection, sort of uh, paralleling the story of Jonah, who was in the fish for three days, in the same way he will uh, be buried for three days. Um, so that those are the those are the references, um, and then you know if you want to add to it, then you can look at Paul, who actually speaks of Adam directly using his name as a historical uh, person. Well, uh, this has been good. As I said, I don't blame you if you're like, gosh, this is a ton of content. Go, come back to the stuff uh, that I've given you. Uh, take a look at the resources. Um, and uh, next time uh, we'll talk about just one. There are many more possible. Even if you've, even if someone's read this document, might say, "Well, you know, that all sounds well and good, but I can't believe in a, a, a any God that would allow suffering." And plenty of people say that. So we'll we'll resp- we'll give a, a, a Christ-centered response to what the class is next time to that objection. There are many more, and uh, maybe eventually in the future I'll teach on that material. But go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.